Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and welcome to Just Something About Her. On this podcast, I talk to powerful women about how they made it to the top on their own terms. Welcome to the second part of our two-part conversation on Afghanistan here on Just Something About Her. It's been a tragic week in Afghanistan following the Taliban takeover of Kabul. The death toll from two bombings near Kabul airport has reached almost 100. At least 70 Afghans were killed in the crowds, while the U.S. says 13 of its soldiers are among the dead with more wounded. The Pentagon just announcing that the last U.S. troops have withdrawn from Afghanistan, marking the end of America's longest war. The United States evacuated some 6,000 American citizens and a total of more than 124,000 civilians. We will maintain the fight against terrorism in Afghanistan and other countries. We just don't need to fight a ground war to do it. Last episode, we spoke to Elise Jordan, who worked in Republican foreign policy positions for President George W. Bush and lived in Afghanistan for a project with the U.S. Agency for International Development and as a reporter. If you haven't listened to part one of that conversation, I highly recommend you go back and listen. Elise talks very movingly about the sacrifices her Afghan colleagues made when working with the U.S. government and her failed attempts to help evacuate some of those colleagues and friends who fear for their safety under Taliban control. She talks about the people that may be left behind, including women and girls who face the likelihood that they'll be forced into a oppressive state under Taliban control. On this week's episode, we go a little deeper into understanding what the lives of women and girls in Afghanistan have been like. As Elise explains from her experience embedding with female U.S. Marines who were tasked with connecting with women in the country back in 2010, that was part of their mission. She explains the disconnects between the Afghan people's wants and needs versus what the U.S. was able to provide. She also shares her frustration with the media coverage of the situation in Afghanistan over the past decade. And both of us, one coming from a Republican perspective, one coming from a Democratic perspective, share our own paths to how we ended up having the same conclusions about the United States' role in Afghanistan. So now we're going to dive right into where we left off with Elise Jordan on Just Something About Her. Elise, you started working for the National Security Council in 2007 on communications for Afghanistan and worked for the State Department before that. So I'm curious to hear how your own views have evolved since the mission began through your work there and now today. Well, even before 9-11, I had always been 
interested and just horrified by the treatment of Afghan women. It was just something mm-hmm. that really uh, resonated with the young teenage Elise Jordan in Mississippi for some reason. How did you even know about it? Jay Leno's wife made it a big issue. Oh, my God. Jay Leno's wife is who introduced me to it, too, because yeah. when I was working for Bill Clinton. I think Clint was going to be on Leno and she took as an opportunity to talk to a boss about Taliban. But Jay Leno's wife is the first person I've ever heard talk about the Taliban. Yeah, she really same. did a lot to raise awareness and concern for the plight of Afghan women. And it just, you know, the idea of women having to live that way and being forced mm-hmm. to live that way, it just always really moved me. And I just found it so appalling. And when I was a freshman in college at Yale, this was before I was a sophomore when 9-11 happened. So I was a freshman and the Taliban spokesman came and he did a talk at Yale. On the Yale campus? On the Yale campus. And it was, you know, he was trying to be moderate, but, you know, it never really comes out that moderate. And Yale was quite liberal, but not the bastion of wokeness that it is today. Right. That could never happen today. (laughs) Never would happen today. So I had been aware of it. And then, you know, 9-11 happened. Mrs. Bush put a lot of effort into raising awareness about Afghan women and the White House put resources, the State Department. This is something I forgot about, but I just want to pause on that because it's interesting. Laura Bush even like did like some kind of address to the nation on this. Is that right? Beautiful radio address. Good morning. I'm Laura Bush, and I'm delivering this week's radio address to kick off a worldwide effort to focus on the brutality against women and children by the Al-Qaeda terrorist network and the regime it supports in Afghanistan, the Taliban. Fighting brutality against women and children is not the expression of a specific culture. It's the acceptance of our common humanity. So, you know, and I was Mm -hmm. like 90% of the country very supportive of going in and kicking the Taliban's ass after what happened on 9-11. The mood of the country, we forget, too, 20 years later, just how angry everyone was and how we wanted to And scared. And scared and petrified. We saw people jumping from the Twin Towers. And after two decades, we can start to reckon and hopefully deal with maybe we didn't deal with it and process it in the most productive way. And what could we do differently if we approach this again? But, you know, I was supportive of the policy. Iraq, when I entered the White House in 2004, that was really the main focus by then because Afghanistan seemed calm-ish and it was this era of hope. It was, you know, restive in certain Mm -hmm. places, but you know, the Taliban even tried to surrender and get amnesty immediately in 2001 you know, when we entered Afghanistan. And that was a big missed opportunity, but it's easy to look back, you know, in history at big missed opportunities like mm-hmm. that. And then after the surge in Iraq. That was 2005, right? That was in 2005, 2006. And so mm-hmm. the tide turned a little bit in Iraq. And so There was an enthusiasm that by doing the same thing in Afghanistan, we could perhaps have a similar result. I remember that was a big thing on the Democratic side, too, was like, Bush has ignored Afghanistan. Yeah, and Obama gave a big speech about Afghanistan being the right war. President Obama set up the conditions for himself where he had hype doing more in Afghanistan. And Mm -hmm. so then when he's presented with troop options to add more troops. In 2009. Yes. And he really just got put in a position by his generals where it was very difficult for him to say no. And he got boxed in. Can I pause and say one thing that's like, 
sort of amusing, even in this dark time about, I think you'll agree, I worked in a Democrat White House, you worked in a Republican White House, is that the big joke is the president always gets three options for the military. One is status quo. Two is the option they want. And three is certain nuclear war. Something just absolutely obscene <laughs> that's never going to happen. So as to make, you know, choice two look reasonable. It's like me negotiating for a prom dress with my dad. <laughs> yeah. So Obama, but, this was his first experience. Yeah. He got the shock of seeing the three alternatives and what the military really wanted him to do. And it's a problem that I see that's continued even to today because I look at what happened and what went down and there's contingency planning for these worst case scenarios. And I just don't understand it. I almost think that because some in the higher echelons of the military knew that Donald Trump was all bluster and wasn't ever really going to draw down, it wasn't taken as seriously as perhaps it should have been. And so- the Biden administration comes in and was left pretty flat-footed, but also they didn't course correct on their own. I'm not going to just completely, you know, blame it all on the Trump administration because sure. I think this yeah. is just I think this is a collective failure of all four administrations. I don't think that anyone's gotten it right. I think this is a bigger problem for us to grapple with as Americans as to why we were so terrible at what we attempted in Afghanistan and what does it say about what we yeah. should do and what's reasonable in our foreign policy and also humane too. I want to go back to when you were there working in 2008, I guess. 2009. The, and then I was back reporting in 2010. Right. So when you were there in nine and 10, did you feel the country want to fight the Taliban, that they did not have the support of the country? You know, what was your sense of the state of mind of the Afghans as they're like considering the future of their country at that point? Well, really different constituencies. I'm going to oversample Kabul just because that's the most cosmopolitan, educated, politically active place and where Mm -hmm. I spent most of my time. And Afghans hated the Taliban and you know, didn't want to see the Taliban come back. And at that point, it seemed, you know, it was very, very far in the future, even though it was getting more restive. But at the same time, they hated the government so much just because so many Afghan elites had just raped and pillaged the foreign aid that had come through the country, the bank. There was just so much stealing and theft and wealth being generated at the expense of the men and women it was supposed to help. And then we also created a security state, too. Mm-hmm. We created a shadow industry of young men being employed in security. And mm-hmm. to contrast that to what, you know, when I was going on foot patrols in Hellman and the women yep. that we would speak to in these houses who never you know, got to go out into the sun because they were kept in their thatch roof house, they uh, were just petrified of the Taliban, too. The Taliban were the reason they didn't risk it to go walk to the village to get health care or to take their kids to get educated. And it you know came and went in waves, but they were pretty confined to home. And one of the women I remember asking, you know, can mm-hmm. you get me on one of those big birds through the translator told us that, you know, that's what she wanted from the female Marines. She wanted to get out. Yeah. And that's something the mm-hmm. female Marines were never going to be able to give her. 
So you wrote this piece for Marie Claire. If you Google Elise Jordan, Marie Claire and Afghanistan, you can find it. It's sort of heartbreaking to read it. So it was a 2010, you were embedded with female Marines that had been deployed in Afghanistan. As part of the surge. Yeah. And, that, and it was Stanley McChrystal. It was his sort of theory that if we put more effort into reaching the women of Afghanistan, that that would sort of unlock something in the Afghan people that would help. That was a facet of General McChrystal's overall so interesting on counterinsurgency, which mm-hmm. there's one concept that I hope the U.S. military never attempts again. It's counterinsurgency. You know, he put in these rules of engagement. I uh, started giving awards for courageous restraint, for troops not being as kinetic and not firing. And it really, you know, caused a lot of disconcertion among the troops. Sounds like wow, we're asking too much. Yeah, we're asking way too much. I mean, I think 10 years ago, we were so immersed in it all that it might not have sound. As insane um, as as it sounds now. In retrospect, right? You're like creative thinking, but like, why are we putting millions of dollars into gross soybeans in Afghanistan when Afghans don't like soybeans? Stuff like that. You know, we really tried to say that the reason we hadn't done that well in Afghanistan was we had failed at counterinsurgency and we could win over fence sitters. But at the end of the day, has America ever been successful in a counterinsurgency campaign waged on a foreign soul? No. No. And in theory, it was such a great idea. And I love the concept and I love the idea of reaching out to Afghan women. But I don't know that doing it with heavily armed troops that have to walk dozens of miles foot patrols for hours and hours in the stifling heat, I don't know if that's the best use of their resources and their no. lives, frankly. Here's what you wrote about what the U.S. wanted to talk to these women about versus what the conversation was. But the women weren't interested in any of that. What they really want to talk about is their safety. Quote, when will Obama pull out the troops? Even then, it was the same, right? So you said they were like, I want to get on the big bird. Even then, 10 years ago, the fear was this moment. And this is way, way, way out in the rural areas of Hellman. Mm -hmm. So, and certainly Mm -hmm. like, you know, that was just one story of many, and I'm not going to say that that's illustrative of the views of the vast majority of Afghans in rural communities who probably, frankly, now they're just trying to survive and they need to survive and they're sick of being terrorized. And I wish that we could have brought more security, but it turns out that doing it with a bunch of troops and a bunch of bombs isn't the way to make anything more secure. And so these last couple of years, while American casualties have gone down, Afghan civilian casualties, especially women and children, have really gone up. And Afghan troops were still dying at record numbers. There was a lot of rancor thrown at the Afghan troops for not sticking with the fight. But I can't say that I necessarily blame these Afghan soldiers posted at rural outposts who aren't getting food, they aren't getting paid, and their government is, you know using a gilded gold toilet. I just, you know, I can't say that I would want to fight for those Afghan officials. That's something I had not really appreciated until this conversation was the like sort of level, you know, what you're describing. I can imagine a level of cynicism about not just that the U.S. is going to leave, but that the government that is using U.S. money is protected by the U.S., supported by the U.S. is like that level of grift. I know I think about it, just how angry, you know, Jared and Ivanka's grift 
on the American <laughs> public in the Trump hotel and the people who enabled that and who yeah. said it was okay and let it go on and my anger at those who enabled American corruption. And this is just a whole different ball game on a size and scale that you can't imagine. And also doing it at the same time that I think 90% of Afghans live in dire poverty. It's just mm-hmm. so disgusting. I can't imagine stealing that much yeah. when there's such great need. And that's how Afghan leaders failed Afghanistan. American leaders did too. I did. But at the end of the day, most Afghans that I speak with, they reserve the real rancor for Afghan leaders. So does your Twitter feed. Yeah. Stick with us. It's time for a quick break. And then I want to talk to Elise about her qualms with press coverage of Afghanistan over the past decade. That's next on Just Something About Her with Elise Jordan. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to Just Something About Her with Elise Jordan, who formerly lived and worked on Afghanistan through government jobs and as a reporter. So you've been uh, critical of the press coverage or the lack of press coverage, you know, in recent years, right? After 2010, it was sort of a fraction of what it used to be. And I know that, you know, we talked about how Mrs. Bush did a radio address nation about, about the Taliban and the impact on women and girls. And and that was like a priority. It seems now, and some of the coverage now, after not having covered Afghanistan, the Taliban, and concern about women and girls for a long time, is that the narrative of women and girls' oppression under Taliban rules, it's it's used as a storyline now to either shame Biden or, you know, Biden's decision or get more viewers. And that, you know, it's something we need to be discussing. So it's good that it's getting coverage. But how have you seen the focus of the Afghanistan story change over the time you've worked on it? So many journalists have tried for so long to keep covering the story. You know, Mm -hmm. I've been going in as freelancers over the last 10 years when it wasn't as popular of a story. It's a story that just simply didn't rate for cable news above Donald Trump, frankly. And you look at The Trump effect coupled with the decline in local newspapers. And so you don't have your local paper sending a reporter for a month to go do an embed with the National Guard that's posted in coast Afghanistan. You just don't have that kind of coverage trickling down at the local level anymore. And then you don't even have it at the national level. You look at how many major national newspapers 
and media outlets have had to cut their bureaus all across the world and international coverage and local coverage Mm -hmm. within our own local communities. That's really what has suffered so much. I think one thing that has made this episode particularly wrenching for Americans in a way that it should and probably will going forward is the people whose lives are under threat in Afghanistan, we hear from them directly, right? Like they can email you, they can text you. You can WhatsApp in the middle of the night. They can WhatsApp in the middle of the night. You can share with me, you can forward to me, you know, as you did today, a woman that was trying to get out with like photos of her and stories about her family, you know? people are able to tell us themselves and and, and get in touch with you. And it just makes it, you know, it makes Americans face. This is the impact that we have when we. When we do this and when we go out in the world and when we don't think about the consequences and the after effects of how you actually do get out, which I have plenty of sympathy for. It was always going to be very difficult to get out. I just refuse to accept that this is the best we're capable of as yeah. Americans. I, I'm not going to yeah. ever be that cynical. I'm not going to be that cynical where I say that the best military, yeah. the strongest diplomatic corps, all these resources, that this is the best we can do. And certainly, you know, navigating coronavirus at the same time is such a challenge. But I guess I, you know, it's a little bit bittersweet for me because I had been so impressed by the Biden administration's competence with coronavirus. And so mm-hmm. I had this vision of you know, a very technocratic, smooth administration navigating challenges and making government work and function. And so this just, you know, kind of ripped the blinders off a little bit and reminded me of the challenges that every administration faces when it comes to war. And I'm, I do feel in a state darkly sick way, I am so grateful that we're able to have such constant communications I with know. people who are over there and then we're able to see the reality of what's happened. When we had a civilian mass casualty airstrike on a wedding, you didn't get to see the real-time images and the horror of an entire community being wiped out by yeah, misfired airstrike. You just didn't get to see the immediate pain and the consequences. And we're seeing that with this evacuation when you have young children, you know, trying to cling to a plane and it's horrible. And I give anything if it could be another way, but I do think that the images and the ground reality of what's happening, hopefully will make us more thoughtful about what we do in the world going forward. All right, time for one last break. We'll be right back with Elise Jordan on Just Something About Her. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
Welcome back to Just Something About Her with Elise Jordan, a former foreign policy advisor. I want to share one of my conclusions from what we've seen unfold with the U.S. troop withdrawal in Afghanistan. For those living in countries we intervene in and Americans, I just don't think any amount of firepower is going to change the will of a country. Even if you're propping up the government, you can't force that government to truly represent the people that it's supposed to. And likewise, with America, you can't force Americans to be invested in something they no longer think is worthwhile. I mean, it's been 20 years. Yeah. I think 20 years ago, a lot of us did see terrorism as possibly the greatest threat and worth the loss of life and the amount of money we are spending in Afghanistan. And I suppose we could have kept going indefinitely, but it was clear that the American public made the decision that those sacrifices were no longer worth it. And political leaders weren't willing to put themselves out there to campaign and to push to make the sacrifice when the American, they were just so clearly out of touch with the American public. And you can just see that and how the popularity of the war deteriorated over so many years. And the Republican Party was really out of step with their base. And that Mm -hmm. was where Donald Trump, I personally think, was able to come in and exploit how Republican elites still wanted a very hawkish foreign policy of intervention, and Donald Trump offered something different. I'll close with just a question for you about refugees and what we should expect about, you know, coming to America, you know, now from this flow ongoing. Jen, you're not going to find a group of people who are more ready on day one to become American citizens than people who have really taken the risk to work for us. And they're overwhelmingly, most are going to speak English. They have already been working in the Western workforce. They're going to add a lot to American society. They're going to you know, bring their own values of pluralism and their understanding of just how precious it is to have freedom and to have your basic human rights. And I think they have so much to add to America, and I hope that we show the best of America in welcoming these Afghans. And so far, I've been heartened by the response that I've been seeing of Americans stepping up to volunteer to help refugees at the various place of entry where they're being resettled in America. I've seen, you know, volunteer posts, and then immediately it'll say, this has been filled, you know, look at this opportunity or donate monetarily. And I think it's something that we all can do. There are so many problems in the U.S., but it's core to who America is that we welcome. Bring us your poor, bring us your tired, your huddled masses. And I think we can do that right now. I think that we've made some huge mistakes in Afghanistan. And I think that our best form of penance and helping to do what we can to not get rid of because we're never going to get rid of the moral stain, but mm-hmm. to do what we can, this is the best way to start. And I pray that we come together on it. Are there particular organizations that people could support if they wanted to help that you're aware of? You can always go to UNICEF, which does great work on the ground in Afghanistan. You can you know, support Save the Children. And you can look at a lot of the local organizations in the United States that are doing work. I know that the Lutherans have a very strong robust program to help resettle refugees. I would assume that the Red Cross is playing some sort of a role. There are many ways that people can 
dedicate their money and also their time to help welcome our Afghan friends who are going to be coming over. Elise, time just flew by. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you to Elise Jordan for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcasts app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Stephanie Stender is our post producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castro Russell is our executive producer.